Okay, number number one, number two. Okay, y'all ready? We're in a spiritual warfare series. And in the series, we've gone through three aspects of spiritual warfare. The first aspect is, the first C, is civilian. civilian. Second one is courtroom. And then when we hit pleading the blood, we realize that pleading the blood actually could be under all three. It's part of the preventative side, it's part of what you do in the courtroom side, and it's also what happens when you're in heavy combat. Well, let's do it. So it's called when the death angel passes over. And I want you to think about that concept, when the death angel passes over. And I'm going to tell you a tale by the rabbis. And it's a very unusual tale. I'm not telling you I adhere to it or not. But I think that what you'll get from the tale is that because of the fact that this realm with the death angel is invisible and you can't see what's going on, man tries to understand it. He tries to get meaning from what happens in life. And I think we're constantly working it out, especially when we're doing this thing of fighting spiritual warfare. You're looking for that meaning. So I'll just tell you this story, and some of you may have heard it by the rabbis, but there were two traveling angels. And they stopped to spend the night in the home of a wealthy family. And the family was rude and refused to let the angel stay in the mansion's guest room. Now, Hebrews tells us that you can entertain angels and not know it. And then in the Old Testament, a lot of times they would think it's the Lord or, you know, it would be the angels. But instead, the angels were given a small space in the cold basement. As they made their bed on the floor, the elder angel saw a hole in the wall and he repaired it. When the younger angel asked, Why? The elder angel replied, things aren't always as they seem. Now, I get from this is the younger always asks the elder, why do you do what you do? So the next night, the pair came to rest at the house of a very, very poor, but very hospitable Filipino farmer, I'm sure, and his wife. <laughs> and after sharing what little food they had, the couple let their angel sleep in their bed where they could have a good night's rest. Now, how many of us have slept in the bed of a Filipino's home while they slept somewhere else, on the floor? I mean, this type of hospitable behavior is not something we share in the Western world. And when the sun came up the next morning, the angels found the farmer and his wife in tears. Their only cow, whose milk had been their sole income, lay dead in the field. The younger angel was infuriated. He had had enough. He asked the older angel, how could you let this happen? The first man had everything and you helped him. The second family had little but was willing to share everything and you let the cow die. Things aren't always as they seem, the elder angel replied. Things are not always as they seem. We've talked about that in leadership, that sometimes what you think is happening above you is not exactly what's happening. I think that's the same in the realm with the Lord. So anyway, the elder angel said, it's not as they seem. The guy was like, why would you help the guy that was so unhelpful? The elder angel replied, When we stayed in the basement of the mansion, I noticed there was gold stored in the hole in the wall. Since the owner was obsessed with greed and unwilling to share his good fortune, I sealed up the wall so he wouldn't find it. <laughs> and then he's like, well, then explain the other one. And he said, then last night as we slept in the farmer's bed, the angel of death came for his wife. I gave him the cow instead. Things aren't always as they seem. And so, sometimes that is exactly what happens when things don't turn out the way they should. If you have to trust that there's some kind of outcome or purpose, you might not know until sometime later. And so this is a tale of a rabbi. Things aren't always as they seem. 
But what it says to me, there are times in life that a literal spirit of death comes. And you have to be more prepared than just hoping angels are taking care of it while you're sleeping. I'm going to dare say to you that we have something that we have to utilize because the times we live in are sadistic, they're rough, they're terrible. And the enemy is on the prowl. And he's seeking everywhere. So with that as the setting, I want you to contrast the scene of two people groups. And one's in Exodus 12, verse 7, and 22 through 23. And we touched on this last time of talking about that there was one thing that could protect the people on the night that the death angel came. What is the one thing we have? The blood. And so the illustration in this, the night is so different. Like one, I want you to think about this. Have you ever been in a storm? It's different being in a storm when you're outside and get to enjoy the storm up close and personal. And it's different having the storm if you're inside the house. Those are two totally different experiences. One, you have a covering and one you don't. So the illustration is the storm in the night, the wind blowing, it's dark, the cold, the rain, the hail. And then you can experience the difference between when you're in it, you're being pelted. Like it's coming down on you. But a roof over you and a warm fire and the storms on the outside is a totally different experience. I feel like it's my life mission to get people into as much prevention as possible. To where you're inside and you're protected from the storm that's raging. The biblical setting of this is the death angel passing over. There was chaos, there was shouting, there was wailing, there was crying. It was the firstborn. It happened also to their cattle. It went even into their animal lines. In Exodus 12:30, it was about the groaning and the grieving. So I have to ask you, what was the method of death? I mean, we know the death angel passed over, but what was the method of the death? Yes. If we were playing Clue, we would say it was done in the library by Colonel Mustard with the... (laughs) You know, as many casualties as there were that night, it's a unique question that we haven't asked this before. As this goes over the method. You know, this kind of shows you that as deeply as we explored this passage last time, there's still, every time you look at it, there's more to, to be seen, to ask, to understand. And it says in verse 30 that Pharaoh arose in the night and your leadership is up and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. So every home in Egypt was affected by somebody being dead in it that night. You wonder if it happened all at once. You wonder how it took place. If it was a ripple effect. So you see the death angel go through. Now, as far as how do you picture the death angel, you know, we think of the cartoon character. We think of what people who hate you on certain birthdays do to you, you know, of balloons. And, you know, they'll they'll give you a, a character of it. But I would say that the Grim Reaper is probably like what we saw in Mexico. We were down there with Josh, and I was like, why? on earth on the back of the bus would they have this horrible depiction of death i mean 
who wants to drive behind that bus? You know, I mean, you're like, you've got to be kidding. How people drive in Mexico, that adds another dimension to it, too. And, you know, I kind of had a guess of why they did it, but, you know, it's just shocking to hear that they think that somehow by putting his picture up will cause him to have mercy on them. So what stands between them and the death angel is put a picture out on a bus for him. Pay for that. That's their hope. That's their superstition to think that that would protect them. You know, we had a girl, I met her at a restaurant, and she wasn't a bit interested in God. But one night she called me, she told me, you know, I'm not interested in God, but she said, could you get to my house? And she gave me one of those maps to get over there, but she had had some friends over, and when the guy went to the bathroom, there was someone in the bathroom. Yet there wasn't anybody in the home. (laughs) And when he sees this being in the bathroom, this person, And then he realized that there's no one supposed to be in the house. The guy had been this macho guy. He had been like a great personality. He went into a catatonic state and didn't come out. I mean, they just put him on the couch and he couldn't do anything. So I was curious what she'd do. So her answer to it was get me over there. I'd given her a Psalm 91 book. And so I go over to her house and when I go in, y'all, She has Bibles laying out open. She's put every religious thing that she could find out. She had crosses laying. She had candles burning. I mean, she was like scared out of her mind. And I think that's what the best that even the Christian world or people close is that they don't know what to do about this presence. And according to scripture, I think there's only one thing that stands between you and death especially with what's coming on the earth. The strongest verse on being protected is in the book that tells us how bad it's going to be on the outside. It's the book of Revelation. In Revelation 6, 8, it talks about this actual spirit of death. And the thing that I want you to understand tonight is that death is not your friend. I don't know how pastors can manage to get up and preach death as a friend. But the Bible clearly does not depict death as a friend by any means. So if you make a friendship with death, you're making some sort of alliance. You're not much better than putting this picture up on the bus. I want you to see that your Bible tells you in Revelation 20:14 and Revelation 6, first of all, that death sits upon a horse. And then Revelation 20, verse 14, the last thing that will happen is that death will be thrown into the lake of fire. I will be glad for that moment. To think that death will be thrown into the forever lake of fire. And death entered in when in the garden we fell and he said, you will die if you eat this. And so we open ourselves to something that God never intended, like We were eating of the tree of life, tree of life, tree of life, tree of life, and it wasn't good enough for us. So we ate of death. And so here you see in Revelation that death set up on a horse. So I'm going to tell you very clearly that death is an enemy. (laughs) And the horror associated with it, every part of it, people that get into it by watching movies, that promote death, that glorify death. I mean, I'm telling you, I would repent of it. You don't need anything speeding anything up. 
You don't need that association. And sometimes they glorify the darkest part of life, the most evil, the heartbreak of what death does. Because death comes in, and it's just like what happened in the Garden of Eden. When they ate of the tree, it was a separation between us and the presence of God. And so what does death do? It separates us. It separates us from each other. It's the ultimate heartbreak. And so when God was having our best interest in mind and told us, don't participate in death, I'm telling you, death is an enemy to you. It's an enemy to your family. It's an enemy to what God's doing on this earth. In no way should you make any association with this thing called death. It's horrifying. The idea of the grim reaper, I'm afraid, is not far away, not far from the spirit of death. Perhaps the person who first drew that image had seen some kind of vision of what it looked like. You know, I've noticed, I've seen very compliant people have the spirit of death come for them. I've seen people that have a strong will, but open doors, the spirit of death come for them. I would tell you that you have to be aggressive spiritually and literally lay down a bloodline between you and that spirit of death. You know, I was thinking about the times that I've actually felt death. You literally can feel the spirit. One of the times that I felt it was on Elizabeth Street, but I could feel the spirit. It made you feel crazy. And I remember praying and I couldn't get any kind of release, so I get up and I go into the den. And I pray and pray and pray and pray. And I finally, I go to bed. I get up the next day and exactly that time was when they killed those people at the convenience store, the pregnant girl. And so I was just a few blocks from that house. So I was feeling what went down. Now, I don't know if maybe I prayed it off of, it was gonna be a lot more people than what it was. I don't know if I just felt it. I don't know what it was, but I could feel death. And it's a literal spirit. We had a guy that we lived next to in Irving, and he was one of those guys that was obsessed with death. There was just something about Bob that was something wrong with him. They would have very unusual parties. The people that came were people of the dark, of the night, and they were obsessed. For his birthday, they took some kind of a, he was telling me, a hearse, and they took him around in it for hours. But I couldn't tell what I was picking up on him except something was terribly wrong with him. So I decided not to win him to the Lord by inviting him in my apartment. I decided to win him to the Lord by asking him to help me put my nativity scene back up on my porch on the second floor. So I put him on a ladder. And I asked Bob to hold baby Jesus while I was putting him back into place. And while Bob's on my ladder holding it and I'm holding on to Bob, Bob can't get away as I asked Bob, have you asked Jesus in your heart? <laughs> we were having a discussion on that. Well, Bob didn't say a whole lot to me. He looked very shaken, but of course I won all the money that year. I was real pleased with that. We were both happy and he leaves. And it wasn't too long, but I was the, you know, the curious neighbor that comes by his front door. And there on Bob's doorstep was a package from CBN. And it was addressed to Bob. I go, Bob, has this gone to the wrong address? And he goes, no, Angie, I accepted Christ. That's good. So I asked Bob, what's the real truth about you? <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And while he was talking to me, my head started spinning so bad, I'm telling you. And I was like, um, yeah, we need to get a little more deliverance here. You know, I would think back of what I felt like around Bob. I've had these experiences. I felt death go for him. So I had to take time and, and pray till I got that off of him. Brother Jacob had told me one time as we were walking from this coffee house over there, he goes, what did it feel like? And I told him, I said, it was like wind. And it was cold and it was the worst feeling. It feels horrible. And he told me, oh, he goes, yes, that's the spirit. That's death. But he told me, you have recognized the spirit of death. And so I'm going to tell you, you can feel that spirit. And it's cold. It doesn't have any love. It is evil personified, but it's not something that's intangible. It's actually a spirit without a body that comes. I want you to have a clearer or sharper understanding that just because something is invisible to your eyes does not mean it is not a real spirit. So you must fight it. You must resist. You must not let something happen to you where you don't finish what God has for you to finish on this earth. And that's where you cannot make any kind of allegiance or non-activity against the spirit that comes. So when the death angel passed over in Exodus 12 verse 30, you feel the grieving and the groaning and it sounds just like what you hear out in the city. It's the cry of death. It's a cry of broken hearts. It's the cry of people whose lives are broken and it's hard to put them back together again. And once they have been victimized or vandalized by the spirit of death, it takes a lot of the power of God to build that heart back together again. Because when death has invaded, it is a terrible, cold, calculated move against something that belongs to God. It's in this setting that the Lord protected his people under the Old Testament and told them in verse 7, apply the blood. And the blood was the Passover lamb and his name was Jesus. We had this man that was in church and he was trying to harm the church. And he had made his rounds on many of the churches in the city. He was causing a lot of havoc. But my dad was prepared for him. He didn't know what he looked like, but he hoped that the Sunday that he visited our church, he would know. He identified himself. He started out by always saying, I, James. So everybody called him, my James. Sure enough, he comes in the back of the church. My dad was preventative. He was a shepherd, and he didn't want this spirit loosed on his church. So guess what he did? My dad was waiting. He stepped out of the pulpit. He went down. And he had the communion elements prepared week after week, waiting for the moment the man came. Dad had a theory that where the blood is, the destroyer cannot come in. And so as Dad pulled out the communion elements and they served the communion that Sunday, I, James, got up and ran out. The man that had wrecked so many services and the man that had caused so much chaos, just like what we're talking about, couldn't stand up to the power that's in the Lord's Supper. 
Even a Lord's Supper that to me didn't have a lot of unk to it. Like, I mean, I want a big glass with a big piece of bread. I mean, I think Jesus broke bread like they do at, at the dinners we have in the Middle East. But we get this little crumb, but with Jesus, crumbs are enough. And the crumb was enough that the devil hates the blood. You know, in verse 22, it said, no one should go outside. The protection of the blood is that nobody goes outside the blood. And I was thinking through, there was this man here, and this guy had gotten very excited about the Lord, but in the meantime, he had lost a sister. So he decided that he would go to a medium when he was out of the country. In England, he went to a medium, and he said, could you bring back my sister to me? And she said, yes. And so she began doing what she did. And suddenly, the medium said, here's your sister. She began describing him to this man, and she called him by the name that was their childhood name for him. And so he was very pleased. He knew it was his sister because of the name. And so he asked the witch, do you know Jesus? And she goes, oh, yes, I know Jesus. He goes, no, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And she screamed because she had said, yes, I know Jesus. There's many Jesuses. So he identified which one, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And when she screamed, of course, she has the seance going on and the spirits out there. And when she screams, the guy didn't know what else to do. So he goes, I plead the blood of Jesus. (laughs) And the witch took him out of there. She was like, get out of here. And I would say this was a man who went outside. He went outside the bloodline. And he knew he was in big trouble. But he quickly applied the blood <laughs> in one of the darkest places. And so he couldn't hardly wait to get back to Brownwood and talk to his brother Jack. He was a banker here. And telling, this is what happened to me. He goes, Jack, you're not going to believe it. But it confirmed what my dad believed. The blood is what stands between you and the destroyer. So just like dad had served the Lord's Supper, and there's power in the blood, and just like this man had stepped outside and used the blood, in verse 23, this is what you'll hear in the prayers. It says, the blood stands between us and the destroyer. The destroyer, what a name. That Satan comes to steal, stands between us and the stealer, (laughs) the thief, stands between us and the killer, it stands between us and the destroyer. It's a difference between being stolen from, killed, and utterly destroyed. So it says, the blood stands between us and the destroyer, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house and smite you. Now, there's a place in the Bible that tells you what happened that night. And if you'll turn back to chapter in Exodus 11, verse 6, and Moses is telling Pharaoh a prophecy. And this is a prophetic word. This is not an after the fact. It's what Moses told Pharaoh is going to happen this night. Moses tells him, then there will be a great cry that will go out over the land of Egypt as never has been heard before. Sounds like a line out of Princess Bride. 
There was a cry that has never been heard like this before in Egypt. And never will it ever be heard of again. You're going to witness something in history you've never ever experienced before this cry. But he said, I'm going to contrast something with you. And he tells him in verse 7, and as this cry goes out, but among the Israelites, he said, not even a dog will snarl. Not even a dog will snarl at a man or bark at a beast. He says, the reason why you're going to have such a great hideous cry, wailing cry of the soul, and they're not going to even have a dog barking. It's going to be so calm of a night for them. He said, I'm doing it for one reason. He said, I'm going to make a distinction. And I'm going to make a difference between those that are in Egypt and those that are in Israel. He said there will be a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now you may live in Egypt, but you are a citizen of Israel. You may live in Brownwood, Texas, but you are a citizen of one kingdom or the other. And even though they could have been Egyptians... It says, I will make a distinction tonight between Egypt and Israel. The nation that was yet to be, and a word that was yet to come. And he said, and all these officials of you, now picture Moses saying this to Pharaoh, and all these officials of yours will come, and what will they do? Look out the window? They'll come and bow down. Can you imagine Moses is telling the king, the Pharaoh of Egypt, your men will bow to me. Now that's saying a whole lot. I mean, he's Pharaoh. He could have gone on a tear or a rage there. And of all the prophetic things Moses can say, it's very unusual that he tells them, these men of yours will bow to me. Humble, isn't it? Remember Moses said, I'm the most humble man upon the earth. That Moses was the most humble man. Because humility is different than how we look at it. And he says, All the officials of yours will come and bow down before me and say, Go, you and the people who follow you, go. And after that, I will depart. It's interesting, the language here. You will tell them to go, and all of them will leave, then I will go. In other words, I'm going to stand between you and them. I'm going to make sure they all get out the door. And they'll be bowing to me. But you must say to them, go. And then I will exit. I bet they couldn't be happier <laughs> to get rid of them. Go and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go. And then notice Moses' emotion. Did he laugh? Did he cry? Did he... It says, with hot anger, he leaves. That's a speech. I'm going to tell you, if somebody that's a messenger of God gives you a message and they get mad in the middle of your message, I would tell you, take heed. And Moses gave him a lot of anger. And then that thing that happens to a heart that has already consistently been hardened, hardened to a point, Moses' heated anger and Pharaoh's hardened heart. That's what meant. 
And the only time you get that strongness is if you have a self-will against the will of the Lord. It's not a good squeeze to get into. I'd recommend you not. We're looking here at a distinction. The same thing as the distinction today. There should be a distinction. People get a little bothered if you say there's a distinction between peoples. Everybody's trying to say we're all the same. We were created the same. But the power of God differentiates between us. Because it says according to the dunamis. Each man has a certain amount of dunamis dynamite in him. And so right here we see that there's a distinction made. What makes the distinction between the oppressors and the people? The superiority? Is it their condition? Is it character? Is it your character that makes you so different than everyone else? What is it that makes the distinction? This would be something I'd advise that you answer correctly. What makes the distinction? Moses clearly said, this is going to happen this night. And the reason it will happen is for there to be a distinction. What is that distinction? What? What, what part of that? What's the distinction? The blood. What makes the distinction between two peoples in the Old Testament was circumcised or uncircumcised, the sign of the covenant. Now we are sealed with covenant of blood, and that makes our distinction. The reason for this, the reason that he contrasts the knights, the reason he contrasts the chaos in the world, if you're living in drama and chaos and there's never any peace, I tell you, there's something in you that has not got the blood settled over your life. You've got to get the settled blood. That's where I'm backing us out a little bit of the warfare and saying in our personal lives, we need to have that presence of the Lord anchored inside of us. And then we can help others whose life is in the urgent, is in that place where they've got to be pulled out. So in here, the blood makes a difference. Now, if we think about the blood for a minute, it must have made a big impression upon the minds of the people, thinking about it. And so you see immediately in the next book of the Bible, and when you have only the Torah, there's five. This is the heart of their Bible. Can you imagine Leviticus being your anchor book? And Leviticus tells you in 1711 that life is in the blood. Way before science tells you, life is in the blood. It's unique there. It's sacred. It's precious. Don't let anyone take it from you. You must steward the life that is in the blood. That's why your body's important. It's the temple. It's the blood. For the life of God. You know, people have tried to understand life. And they can't really define what life is. I was reading about what the scientists are saying and philosophers and it's real hard for them to say where is life you know we're fighting to say life's the heartbeat life's the what point is it life we're seeing life is in the blood it's a unique place that you find it it's sacred 
You know, people have tried to make life not so sacred now in a culture of death. And they're taking away the sacredness of life. But also, death is sacred unto the Lord. It's not supposed to be something where you care not. How do I say that? Why do I say that? Some people go, well, after I'm dead, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm dead. The real me is in heaven. My body doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want with it. And for monetary reasons, this or that. But life was so sacred, and the departing of man was so sacred, that Hebrews tells you that Joseph was rewarded for his faith for one thing. Now, out of all the people in the Old Testament, I would tell you that Joseph was probably the one who had the least sin in his life. Or at least you don't see any of the big pieces of stupid in Joseph's life. I mean, after what Joseph went through, you're like, he kept the faith. So if I was going to write on Joseph and how he kept the faith, I would tell you, well, Joseph did this by faith. He did this by faith. He forgave by faith. He loved by faith. He kept up with God by faith. I would go completely, what did Joseph do by faith? It would be as long as the book of Hebrews 11 itself on just the life of Joseph. But the Bible says one thing that Joseph did by faith. One What unbelievable, shocking thing did Joseph do by faith? Come on, you Bible scholars. This is New Testament and Old Testament, too. It was what stuff said. What did Joseph command? Of all the things, take my bones out when you go. For I am not an Egyptian, and my bones are sacred. And that's why I think it's important what happens to you, even to your bones. For I dare say Elisha had some power in him. And he gave orders concerning his bones. And he made a statement. I will live an Egyptian, but I will not die an Egyptian. My heart is not in Egypt. Take my bones to the promised land. It was his statement of faith. We will come out of Egypt. 400-year-old bones. And he said they carried the bones of Joseph out. So this night when they're carrying out, they're carrying on their backs their ancestor, who by faith said, move me with you when you go. Not in spirit, not in something sprinkled over the ocean, but in strength. And I'm telling you, you're anointed clear to your bones. It's sacred I don't see a place in the Bible where we, as Gentiles, we come to this sloppiness in realizing the sacredness of our life. I think we're given into the culture around us of not counting important what God counts important. And then it's unusual that how it plays out that you get to the book of Acts. I don't mean this bad, but there were just some questions I would have asked, I think. And I could see me at the great ascension. And Jesus is up, about to go off. And he has one problem that I have hold of him. And I have two or three more questions I had to ask. Because we're forgetting some things that we needed to ask. And one of them was, Jesus, what about the Old Testament law should we keep? I mean, that's an important question. They forgot to ask it. No one knew. 
So in Acts, they have a great council meeting. And they've got a book of laws, like 613 maybe, I think, of laws. And they're all trying to say, which ones are, are they obligated to? And Peter and Paul are having a little bit of a discussion on this. And they come down to the fact that they've decided there's three you must keep. You know, Jesus melted it down to you must love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor. What did they decide, having been in the presence of Jesus, that we have to keep? If I had come up with three things that the believers had to keep, I would not have thought of this. Read in Acts 15.20. What does it tell us that they decided must be kept? It's hilarious. <laughs> That's how they summed it up. Blood. There's sacredness in blood. Of all the things that can be carried into the New Testament and go through Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, the blood. The Gentiles didn't have to keep bodily circumcision. All the things the Jews could have given, they didn't have to keep their knives and forks kosher. They could eat cheese on their hamburgers. I mean, all these different things. This is what they decided had to be kept. You know, Isaiah 53, 10 talks about blood sacrifices. It's blood. Sacrifice and the crucifixion is extremely bloody. It's completely bloody when you talk about the sacrifice and the crucifixion. I mean, I think that's what Mel Gibson was driving at. And then it tells us in regards that according to Hebrews 10.10, there is now no further need for blood sacrifices. It never is repeated. And as the temple went out, even the Jewish people who didn't realize that had to stop giving the blood sacrifices because without them knowing it, the final sacrifice had been given. It's a forever sacrifice. Now, it tells us that in Revelation 12, 11, you overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Now, let me tell you what blood has for you. You say you need an advocate. You need someone that stands up for you. I'm going to tell you blood has a voice. And that's why it's so important to talk on the blood. If you're speaking on communion, this might be a good way to approach it. If you're speaking on wanting justice, whatever it is you're wanting, I would tell you there's an important thing to blood, and it has a voice, and it either cries for you or against you. People that secretly get away with blood, it cries against them in their hearts, in their lives, and to God's ears. So let's look at this. In Genesis 4.10, it tells us that when Abel's blood was spilt, his blood cried out from the ground. The innocent died for the guilty. And from the moment blood is spilt, it's the innocent dying for the guilty. The innocent dying for guilt. Abel was the first one, and his blood cried out. Hebrews 11.4 makes use of this, and he says that the blood is avenged. Abel's blood cries out and is avenged. It's true. So you see that what blood does for you, it cries for you, 
it cries out for you. It's avenged. And then Revelation 6, 9 through 11, it says the blood speaks. What's the blood saying about you? It talks. In fact, scientists even believe there's communication and there's a speaking voice. When you're marked by the blood, it cries out for you. And this is something very important for you to know. The blood covering can be seen in the spiritual realm. The blood speaks. It's not something that you put on there because of death. The blood is alive. There's life in the blood. The blood lives. Abel's blood. Abel may have been killed, but his blood spoke. There's life in the blood. The blood doesn't quit. And so it speaks out from the earth. So I'm telling you, people marked by the blood, the blood cries out on their behalf. The covering can be seen in the spiritual realm. In Revelation 7, 13 and 14, very important verse. The blood is on the clothes. It may be scarlet, but it becomes white. That we have our clothes dipped in the blood. You know, it's important when we're needing our righteousness to come before the Lord that when He sees us, that what He sees is the blood of His Son. That our clothes are dipped in His blood. Now, as I talk about speaks for us, how can the blood speak against you? If you're saved, how can the blood speak against you? For the blood cries out for you, for now, I know if the blood cries out for you, how can the blood cry out against you? You have blood that speaks up for you. You have blood that's on your clothes. It makes your scarlet sin be white. Your clothes are dipped in them. But I told you, blood both speaks for you and against you. Ezekiel 3, 17 and 18. For if someone sins and you don't warn them, their blood is on your hands. But if you warn them and they don't repent, you've got their blood off of you and they stand for their own sin. So the blood speaks for you and it speaks against you. I don't know what it means to go into eternity with people's blood on your hands, but it doesn't sound good to me. 17 through 21. And Ezekiel tells you very carefully how you can get this blood off of you or on you. But to have blood on your hands, what does that mean? If you're caught with blood on your hands, that means you've... Yeah, that's how it looks. So to say, you know, people go, you don't need to warn anybody. This is just a... <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a very clear verse. That says, their blood will be on your hands. If you don't warn them. It's getting the monkey off of you. If you warn them and they don't repent, it's on them. But if you do not warn them, and you know it, what about parents to children? When you have double. What about people that you're in college with and your roommates and your friends and what about those people that you've never witnessed to that you run around with the blood speaks and the blood warns and the blood is warning you to tell you 
you may have your whole class on your hands because you did not say anything. This does not say you do something violent towards them and you've got blood. This says you do nothing and you've got blood. It's a sin of omission. And it makes you cast as a murderer because you don't love if you don't do this. Strong words. His blood, my blood, their blood. That's how it breaks down. I want my blood cleansed. I want my blood protected, but I don't concern myself at all about theirs. It doesn't go down right. And the Lord doesn't look upon it with favor because he feels like that you're actually not taking seriously the blood that he shed for you if you do not take that step with someone else. So we're either under or out. We're either under the blood or, let's say, or we're within sight of the blood. I mean, under or out is pretty strong. You're either under the blood or out from under the blood. How about if you're under the blood or within sight of the blood? You know, the type and shadow in Hebrews 7, 26, 8, 5, and 10, 1. It says that what happens in the Old Testament serves as a type and shadow for us. It means it's not to be dismissed. A shadow is not the actual shape of the person. It's an exaggerated shape. Or it's a reduced shape. But it's still the shape. And that's what it is. It's a type and it's a shape of what we're going to be seeing in the New Testament. So the Old Testament serves as a shadow of what we're seeing in the bright light of the New Testament. So the full-blown Jesus has his shadow across the Old Testament. And so under the top and the shadow, we apply the blood on the door frame of our life. We eat the lamb. And it says it's a perpetual ordinance. And so you see why Jesus said you'll do this forever when you eat, because they were going, well, that tells me to be a perpetual ordinance. But when he broke it, he said, this is my blood and this is my body. Forever do this in remembrance of me. It's perpetual. So the blood is a perpetual ordinance in your life. And so the application, what would have happened if the Israelites did not apply the blood to their home? It is not a theory. It's not an intellectual, mental ascent. It is completely an application to your life. Um, obedience. I would say that I would take my house and I would apply the blood over it. I would pray through my house. Because immediately after this in Leviticus, they said, in remembrance of this feast of Passover, we want you to put scripture on your house and actually put it on your body. And it's unique to see that they did it physically when he was talking about here. So if you join your Jewish friends for dinner, you kiss it as you go into the house. Many of our Jewish friends have the Psalm 91 in there. They have, you know, some special passages to them. It didn't tell you what word. You put the word on your house. And so I would say to you, if you've moved into your house and your house is just secular because you've never consecrated your house to the Lord, you expect total protection, but you've never took those steps that says they're perpetual of applying the blood. And the blood of Jesus is here. 
you know, when we give a house warning, a lot of times it's, everybody come over here and help us pray out this house. <laughs> but there's what we call Christian atheists, and their house is secular to them. It's just a house. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how I talk, speak, live, if I'm blood-bought. And so you look at this, and you see that the safety was in the application. The obedience. They had to stay inside under the blood. What would happen if you went out that night? If these people went out for one second, they could die within sight of the blood. And many Christians live within sight of it, but not under it. They sit on Sunday, maybe. They sit in someone else, maybe. It's within sight of the blood, but not under the blood. And the destruction that takes place, it says the destroyer passed over. And if you think about it, the destroyer, you can tell he's an entity because he had quite a bit of personal knowledge on the family. He knew who was born first. He knew who the twin was that was the oldest. He knew your ages. And he struck. It's a thinking entity. The firstborn. Revelation 9-11 gives him a name. Apollyon. The only thing which stands between you and the death angel is the blood. The blood. Many times when I'm praying, I just feel it coming up out of my spirit. When I walk into a dangerous place, what stands between me and death is the blood. It's already been shed once. It's attached to my body, to my clothing, to my mouth, to my life, that there's blood over it. The lamb is in you, the blood is over you. I will deliver you from the devil. When he is pouring out his worst wrath upon the earth, and a thousand are fallen by your side, and ten thousand by your right hand, you can overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Amen.